Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. As you turn there, uh, let, me, let me get some input and kind of some interaction with you guys. So what is either your favorite TV series or your favorite movie? Somebody. The Vampire Diaries. The Vampire Diaries. Give me just a free 15 second summary of the Vampire Diaries. Um, Okay, same private Ryan. Give me a, just a quick summary. Go. Uh, they're trying to save a private named Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I got another one after that. It's a movie. It's not for free. Give me a summary. Okay. Alright, say so I'm trying to explain this to me. I've never seen it. Give me a summary so I can kind of know what's going on. Nice. I got another one. Go. One Tree Hill. One Tree Hill. Give me a summary of One Tree Hill. Okay. Um, so there's these two brothers, and they both play basketball, and their dad left them. And, uh, well, he likes one of them, and he doesn't like the other. And the other one, the mom, is with him. And there's a new mom, and the dad is literally crazy. And so there's a lot that goes on there in high school, and then there's time jump. Okay. Who else? Anybody else? Winning time. Go. So, when it time takes place in the 1980s, it's just dude who does real <coughs> He buys the Los Angeles Lakers. And it's basically just like a, dra- a drama show about the, the yeah. Showtime Lakers. Okay. When did it Greater. Huh? Greater. Greater? What's that about? It's uh, about a dude that always wanted to go to the Razorbacks, and he went to the Razorbacks as a walker home, and he had a coach that was with him, and he kept on training with him, and then he became on a scholarship, and then he became a starter. Nice. Then he died. So. <laughs> then he died. But then he died. Lizzie, can you go on and on? That's right. Around now, pass on that. Kid, go. Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers. What's Band of Brothers about? It's a true story. Oh, she's dying. Shh. They went out to World War II, and they took down, like, infinite German faces. Yes. That's good. Holly. Huh? Gilmore Girls. Give me a summary of Gilmore Girls. Go. Shh. One more. All right. So, so, think about the TV show or... The movie that you were giving me a summary of. Why did you say the words that you said when you were giving me a summary? It's what it's about. Kind of the, the main points, right? You didn't go to every detail, but you, you kind of the, the main things, the most important things that you you need to know. Yeah, like if if I'm gonna if, if you're gonna tell me about Saving Private Ryan, I need to know. Like, give me a, just a, just the story. You're gonna give some highlights, some of the most important things, just so I kind of get a good understanding of what it is, right? In a sense. Hebrews chapter 9 is sort of a summary of everything that the author of Hebrews has covered up to this point. So when you read Hebrews chapter 9, you're going to see a lot of what we've already talked about. It's kind of like a summary. You know, you may have had an assignment in school where you have to read a book and write a page summary or something like that. You've got to write, you've got to, you got to key in on some of the most important details. It's really important that we do that. You're giving a, a summary of a movie or a TV show. So... Up to this point in the book of Hebrews, the author has shown the superiority of Christ 
to everything. Christ is, is the superior revelation of God. Christ is superior to the angels, to Moses, to Joshua, to the high priest of Israel, to Melchizedek, to the Old Testament sacrificial system. We've seen everything about Jesus is superior. The new covenant that God established in Jesus Christ is more superior than the old covenant that God established with His people in Israel at Mount Sinai. The first ten verses we looked at a couple weeks ago, they, they summarize uh, Israel's worship under the old covenant. You remember I showed you a picture of the, the temple and how all of Israel encamped around it. You looked inside the temple, kind of showed the, the outer courtyard and then the inner part where the priests could go and then the very inner part where only the high priest could go once a year. You guys remember seeing that, that image? That, that's, that's what the temple is. That, that's kind of what the first 10 verses in Hebrews 9 summarize, kind of Israel's worship. And now... Our verses for tonight, we're going to see that they summarize Christ as the high priest of a new and better covenant and what that looks like. So kind of comparing Christ to this, showing how Christ is the mediator, how he is the one who has established a new and better covenant. The author of Hebrews, in a sense, is summarizing the main point of the Bible. Salvation. God, God, the, whole, the, the Bible is one big story about salvation, about how God is saving a people for Himself. And, and we see this summarized in Hebrews about what we're going to look at tonight, about God redeeming people through the blood of Jesus Christ. God saving sinners through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is what this is all about. God redeeming His people through the blood of Christ. And that's, that's the summary of the Bible. I'm confident every one of us knows John 3.16, right? Raise your hand if you know John 3.16. Pretty much everybody in here knows John 3.16. For God's love of the world. We know that but Jesus came. He came to die to save people for their sins, right? We know what He has done. But do we, do we really know why He did it? Or how He did it? We know that when, we, when we're talking with people, you know, we know we, we can say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And we're, you know, we can tell people that people need saving from their sin. We know that Jesus died to save us from our sin. Why did He do that? How did He do that? Well, He died on the cross. Yeah, but, but how did He do all this? Well, that's kind of what we're going to look at tonight. So let me pray, and then let's, let's get into our text for tonight. So let's pray. Father, God, as we come before You to study Your Word, God, would You bless this time? Would You um, help me as I, as I proclaim Your Word and teach it and exhort these students to live for You? And God, would You give us all ears that would hear Your Word clearly, minds that would be able to understand these truths that we're going to look at tonight. God, uh, hearts that would just be softened like the good soil to receive it and to produce fruit. God, would you work in us and, and help us to be more like you tonight once we leave here. Give us a greater understanding, God, of what it is that you've done for us, how you've accomplished redemption through your blood, and help us to understand what that means and the the uh, depth of that that we so often just overlook. God, we love you. We ask your blessings on this night. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to pick up at verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. There are a few things in this text that we need to know about what Christ has done for us. The first thing, I did not pass off the note sheets, did I? Alex, bring that that pen and bucket up here uh, as you're getting those. The first thing in this text that shows us what we need to understand about what Christ has done for us is eternal redemption. And I didn't put these in the computer, but you can, you can get these. Eternal redemption. Christ has secured for us an eternal redemption. I've been reading in uh, Exodus lately. I'm going through the Bible in a year. I started in Genesis. I'm a, I'm a little bit behind, but I'm in Exodus right now. And I, I just got through reading about where God delivered Israel out of Egypt, right? So after Joseph died, the end of Genesis, Joseph died. Remember, Joseph was... His second in command in Egypt, Pharaoh placed him over pretty much everything, and and Joseph died. And there arose a new king in Egypt who didn't know God, didn't know what God did through Joseph. He had no idea the works that God did through Joseph. And he made life extremely difficult for the Israelites. He oppressed them. They were slaves and just made it really hard for them. And so there, people are crying out to God for, for deliverance from this slavery in Egypt. And God sent a man named who? Who did God send to Egypt? Moses. He, God sent Moses. He rose up a man named Moses to go to Egypt to deliver them out of their harsh slavery so that they could come 
and worship God. And when we look at this, this is obviously a picture of what God has done for us in Christ, right? God has uh, delivered us out of the domain of darkness, of sin. You know, we all by nature are slaves to sin and death. God sent Jesus to die in our place so that uh, we could be freed from slavery to sin, so that we could worship God. We're not slaves in Egypt, but we're slaves to sin by our nature. Think about Moses. Moses led Israel through the wilderness. And as he did that, God established a covenant with his people through Moses on Mount Sinai. So when they got to Mount Sinai, Moses went up on the mountain. That's where he received the Ten Commandments. God, he, he determined uh, in this covenant, he determined the basis of the relationship. So basically, God has said to his people Israel, he said, this is my law. This is who I am. I'm revealing myself to you. You're going to know what I'm like. And I will be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. Just obey my commands. Follow after me. Walk in obedience to me. God established a sacrificial system in Israel in which animals would be killed and sacrificed for the sins of the people. But these sacrifices didn't offer forgiveness. They couldn't totally forgive. They they couldn't forgive because they're just animals, right? They, They couldn't forgive. But these, uh, they, they couldn't redeem people. As if you look in Hebrews chapter 9, if you look back a couple verses in verse 8, it, verse 8 says that they could not perfect the conscience of the worshipers. So the people of Israel, although they would offer these gifts and these sacrifices to God to, to atone for his sin, they, they, they carried around the guilt of their sin. They, they never had assurance that they were totally forgiven. This system only allowed the high priest to make sacrifices for the people. And only that once a year. So one time a year on the Day of Atonement, uh, the, the high priest would go into the most holy place where the presence of God is in the Ark of the Covenant and would offer sacrifices. And he had to do this every year. He had to make the same sacrifice year after year after year after year. He would perform a ritual cleansing in which he would cleanse himself. It was required that he, do, that, he did that. And he would go into the earth in the earthly most holy place, the temple that they built, right, where God's presence was going to dwell. He would go in that. He would offer sacrifice for his own sins. Then he would go out and offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. Yet even the high priest of Israel, the one who was going into the most holy place to offer sacrifice for God's people, he couldn't offer salvation. He couldn't offer redemption. He had to repeat these same sacrifices over and over and over What God has done through Jesus is he has secured us eternal redemption, eternal redemption through his own blood. Jesus didn't go into a temple made by human hands. He went into the very presence of God once and for all. And he remains there. Not having to repeat his sacrifice. He didn't have to go back into God's presence every year like the high priest did. He went once, once to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. Into the very presence of God. Not into a temple made by man. Jesus didn't bring the blood of bulls or goats. He brought his own blood. So when the high priest would go into the most holy place, he would carry with him the blood of a bull or goat or whatever animal he slaughtered. And would sprinkle it on the altar and sprinkle it over the people and the, or the book of the law and do things like that to offer a sacrifice. He would carry the, the blood of a, another animal who would be killed. Jesus didn't go in with the goat's blood. He went in with his own blood. His own blood that he shed. 
He didn't offer an animal sacrifice to God. He offered himself as a sacrifice to God. The blood of the animal sacrifices would be sprinkled on the altar and, and on the people to cleanse them. Yet this was an outward cleansing, right? Because the, the blood of bulls and goats, they can't forgive sins. It was an outward cleansing, something that God accepted for the time being, but it did not provide them the forgiveness they needed. It did not give them the access to God that they so desperately needed. It was an outward cleansing, yet the blood of Jesus cleanses us from within. The blood of Jesus washes us white as snow. When it, we had the ice a few weeks ago, when it, when it first was settling in, I opened up, it was like, I don't even know what morning it was because we had so many days that were the same. I opened up my blinds early in the morning and I looked out and it was just pure white. And the sun was shining right in my front yard and it was just white. And the first thing that came to me, and Ivy, Ivy and I talked about it, she said, I was just like, it's amazing that Jesus washes our sins white as snow. And I'm sitting there looking at the snow and the sun beaming down on it. I'm having to squint my eyes and I'm like, man, what an incredible thing to think about. The purity of the snow. I just I thank God for the purity of the snow and how clean it was. And just thinking, my sin is washed away. It's washed as white as snow because of the blood of Jesus. Because of His own blood. Not the blood of a goat. Not the blood of a bull. But the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience. It is able to purify our conscience. Remember back, I just mentioned it a second ago, verse 8. The blood of bulls and goats. These sacrifices, according to the old covenant, they couldn't cleanse the conscience of a sinner. There was always that guilt. There was always that thought that, man, am I really forgiven? I don't know. What if that scapegoat comes back? What if it was always struggling with doubt and insecurity in this? But Jesus, His blood is able to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see that at the end of verse 14. Purifies our conscience. We can know that we belong to Christ. We can know that our sins are forgiven. We don't have to worry about that because the blood of Jesus is a sacrifice that God accepted fully and finally. It is a perfect sacrifice. Jesus didn't secure for us a temporary redemption, a, a redemption that has to be repeated every year, a redemption that may expire someday. Jesus gives us an eternal redemption. He was the absolute perfect sacrifice who was acceptable to God, who through his one time sacrifice was able to offer forgiveness for all sins for those who trust him. Think about that. Every sin you've committed in Christ, you are forgiven of them all. Past, present, future sins. You are forgiven. Jesus takes us with Him into the very presence of God. He didn't just go into the most holy place and then come out and we never get a chance to enter in. That's what the old covenant looked like where the high priest would go in into a replica, into a kind of a copy, into a shadow. Jesus goes into the very real presence of God and allows us to come into the presence of God with Him. Christ's bloody, sacrificial death cleanses our conscience. We no longer carry the weight of the guilt of our sin. Now, when we sin, you should feel guilty. You should feel convicted. You should feel the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin because you know it is wrong. You know you've sinned against God. But we don't carry around that weight, that guilt, because Jesus, we cast it all on Him. Because on the cross, with His shed blood, He paid for it all. He forgave it all. Every one of your sins 
If you are in Christ, every one of your sins has been placed on Jesus, has been punished, and you are forgiven. Romans 8.1, one of my favorite verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. You don't have to bear the guilt of your sin because Christ already has done that. Because of the blood of Jesus, we have an eternal redemption in Him. Next, we see in verses 15 through 22 that we have an eternal inheritance. We have an eternal redemption. We have an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance. Jesus, through His sacrificial death on the cross, has become the mediator of a new covenant. You see that right in verse 15. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4 says that the soul who sins must die. That's bad news for every one of us because every one of us has sinned. And because of our sin, we must die. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 6 verse 23. He says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. For the wages of sin is death. So in order for anyone to come to God, the penalty for sin must be paid. Right? Thus, we need a mediator. And Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. There is no other mediator. You go to Jesus. Jesus, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way we can have access to God. So, this poses a question. If Jesus is the only way to the Father, if Jesus is the only way we can have forgiveness of our sins, What about the people who lived and died before Jesus came? What about the people in the Old Testament? What about people like Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua, David? What about these guys? Daniel? What about these guys in the Old Testament? What happened to them? What about these people? If Jesus is the only way people are forgiven, what about Old Testament believers? Lizzie actually asked me this question a couple months ago. How are people forgiven in the Old Testament? Do you mind want to take a stab at it? They're saved the same way you and I are today. The finished work of Jesus Christ. Every person is saved by the finished work of Christ. It is nothing you or I do. It is only in Christ Jesus. Those under the old covenant who believe God. God counted their faith in His righteousness. Think about Abraham. Romans chapter 4 says that Abraham believed God and God counted that to him as righteousness. God said of David, he was a man after his own heart. These these Old Testament believers, they, they trusted in the promises of God. They trusted in the Messiah who would come. They trusted in the finished work of Christ that they would look forward to, but really was already completed before the foundation of the world. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Right there in chapter 4, I think verse 3. His works were already finished from the foundation of the world. So in a sense, God had already done it, but it hadn't quite happened yet in history. And so the Old Testament people, they looked forward to this promise and they trusted God. They trusted in the finished work of Christ, what God would do. That's how anyone is saved. It's by God's grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's nothing you or I do. It's all in Christ. And that's the amazing thing about Jesus' sacrificial death. His blood covers every sin. 
Look at this, verse 15. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Under the first covenant, those people who lived before Jesus, who trusted in Christ, their sins are forgiven through his death. Every sin, past, present, future of those who have believed, do believe, and will believe in Him are forgiven in Christ. And through His death, He has produced for us an eternal inheritance. Verse 15. Verses 16 and 17 tell us that this eternal inheritance is given to us through a covenant or through a will. Through a covenant, something that bonds something. Or through a will. And a will, what's a will? A will only takes effect after a person dies. So, my grandmother, she recently died. She had a will. What happens? She kind of had a will in order of what she wanted with all her stuff and all her affairs in order. And it, was, it only went into effect after she died. And so when we think about this, in order for us to receive this inheritance, the one who made the will must die. And so if God is the one who established the covenant with us in Jesus Christ, and if it is, if it is as verse 16 says, a will, it only takes effect once the one who created it dies. And so it, it really, in a sense, God had to die in order for us to receive this eternal inheritance. God, He died so that we would receive the eternal inheritance that He promised to those who trust in Him. Even in the first covenant. We see this. In the first covenant that God made through Moses, blood was required. And think about this. It's not just blood like you just, oh, I bled and there's that. It's blood. There's life in the blood. Think about it. If you bleed and you bleed a long time, what's going to happen? If you lose all your blood, guess what happens? You die. Why? It's because life's in the blood. And so the blood was involved. It's, it's the symbolic thing, of the symbol of, of life being taken away. In Exodus chapter 24, after Moses had received the law from God, the covenant was confirmed through the shedding of blood. Let me read Exodus chapter 24. Uh, let me read verses 1 through 8 to you real quick. It says, Then he said to Moses, Come up, the, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And so Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And the Lord took the blood, and, and, sorry, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. When God established His covenant with His people, it involved blood, it involved death, so that the will could be enacted. The purpose of the blood was to symbolize sacrifice for sin. 
which brought cleansing from sin. The blood didn't actually cleanse anyone, right? If you get drenched in blood, it doesn't actually clean you, but it's symbolic of the forgiveness of sin. The blood's only a symbol. Even Jesus' own physical blood didn't cleanse us. It's, it's His death, His sacrifice. If blood could cleanse, then why did Jesus die? Why didn't He just bleed a little bit? But it's, it's symbolic of the death, of the sacrifice. It's symbolic of His sacrificial death for sin. And because He died, He paid the penalty for sin. And He enacted this new covenant that allows us to receive the promised inheritance of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The will of God was able was, was uh, taken into effect because Jesus died. So let's pause and think about this for just a second. God's justice and His righteousness demands that sin be punished. And that by death. The wage of sin is death. Sin must be punished by death. You and I, because of our sin, deserve the full wrath of God. We deserve to die. We deserve His wrath. His punishment against sin. Yet God demonstrates His love, Romans 5 in this way. That God sent His Son to us. He demonstrates His love by establishing a covenant with us where we can be forgiven of our sin. God doesn't ignore sin. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be righteous if He ignored sin. But His covenant is that He sent Jesus to pay the full penalty for sin for those who trust in Him. And in order for Jesus to pay the penalty for sin, He had to die. Thus, if you look at verse 22, the very end, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If there's no death, there's no forgiveness. Without Jesus dying, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without Jesus standing in our place as mediator, one who goes before us and and is standing in our place before God, without Jesus as mediator, we don't have an eternal inheritance. And let me say this to you, because I, I really struggle with this for a really long time. And sometimes I do struggle with this. Don't you ever forget how much God loves you. Don't ever forget how much God loves you. You want to know how much God loves you? He sent His Son to die for you so that you could have an eternal inheritance in God. You don't have to carry the weight of your guilt for your sin. Now, when you sin, you should feel convicted. You should turn and humble yourself before God and repent and come before Him, confess your sin to Him. But you don't have to carry that weight. Because Christ already paid for it. If you're anything like me, sometimes you can think, man, I've sinned so bad. God doesn't love me. God won't forgive me for that. And sometimes we're like, I can't even forgive myself. And how arrogant of that is that for us to think that way? Because if God says, I will forgive you in Christ, I love you. So much that I sent Jesus to die in your place. We shouldn't hold on to the guilt of our sin. We should lay it all at Jesus' feet. Say, Jesus, take all my guilt. Take all my sin. We shouldn't hold on to that. Jesus said 
in, in Matthew chapter 11, he said, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. So we, we, we don't carry our sins. Satan's going to make you, he's going to try to make you believe that you're unforgivable when you sin. That, oh, you did it again. Look what you said again. Look what you did. Look what you watched. Look what you're thinking. God doesn't love you. God loves you a little bit less. God's not going to forgive that. That's a lie. That's a lie. Because Jesus forgave your sin, past, present, and future. All in one act. Because of His love for you. Don't ever forget the the love that God has for you. A love that on the cross shed His blood so that you could have forgiveness of sin. That you could have a clean conscience. Be free from the guilt of sin. On the cross, God proved His love for us. Not by overlooking sin but by loving us so much that He provided the payment for our sin. God didn't just say, hey, I'm going to ignore your sin because I love you. No, He said, I love you and I'm going to give you what you need so that you can be freed from the penalty of sin. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for our sin, those who trust in Him have received an eternal inheritance that nothing and no one can take away from you. And if you don't believe that, go read the end of Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Finally, we see the eternal sacrifice in verses 23 through 28. The eternal sacrifice. We've discussed many times in the book of Hebrews how everything about Israel's sacrificial system was temporary and incomplete. Pointing to something greater. It did exactly what it was supposed to do, but it was incomplete because it was pointing to Christ. I used this analogy before, but it's like if you go to the movies, you know, you, you go to the movies and before the movie starts, you, you see the pictures, the Coca-Cola commercial, and you hear the ice drop down, the, you hear the in the Coke pours, you just see the fizz, and you're just like, man, I'm really thirsty. What that does, it shows you your need for something to drink. It shows you exactly what you need for your need to be satisfied. Hey, it shows you I'm thirsty. It shows you what you need in order for your thirst to be quenched. But looking at that picture is going to do nothing for you. Not until you get the real thing. The same thing, the sacrificial system in Israel, it wasn't the real thing. It was a shadow. It was a picture of the real thing. It was a, as verse 23 says, it was a copy of the heavenly things. It was a copy showing what we need. It showed us our sinfulness. It showed us our need for a sacrifice to be made on behalf of our sin before God. But it didn't provide everything we needed. It was pointing to Jesus, the one who can meet our need. Meet our sin need. The one who could actually pay for our sin and forgive us of our sin. The earthly temple, the earthly, the animal sacrifices, they were pictures revealing our sin and our need for a sacrifice. Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin. And He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven into the very presence of God. Not into something like the presence of God. Not into a copy or a picture, but into the very real presence of God. And He remains there interceding for us. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't repeated like the high priests were, who repeatedly offered the same sacrifices year after year. If this wasn't the case, then Jesus, ever since Adam's sin, would have had to die continuously. But His sacrifice was once for all. Therefore, those in the Old Testament, those now, those when He was alive here on earth, and those who will come after, like us, we can have this promise because Jesus died once and it was good for all. Think about what we do the first Sunday of every month here at Hillcrest. What, what is something we observe every the first month of first Sunday of every month? Lord's Supper. We do this in remembrance 
of Jesus. We don't re-sacrifice Jesus. Jesus isn't re-sacrificed every time we take the Lord's Supper. We remember the one-time sacrifice that He made. And His sacrifice, as I mentioned, was with His own blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but with His own blood. Think about to the Last Supper, right before Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and crucified. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant. Not this is the blood of bulls and goats of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. Jesus is saying, I'm establishing a new covenant and it's with my own blood. One that will be eternal. One that is an eternal sacrifice. In the final two verses of this chapter, it shows that what it shows what awaits every person. We see a couple things here. Man's appointed death and judgment and Christ's return. The thing about death Death isn't just some natural process of life. It it is, but it's not just that. Death is divine judgment. We we die as a result, as a penalty for our sin. That's why we all physically will die one day. Unless the Lord comes back and takes us away. It's divine judgment on sin. And death and judgment come to every person. Which is an eternal problem for us as sinners. We only have one life to live, and there are no second chances after death. There's no reincarnation. There's no purgatory. There's no when you, there's death, and then comes judgment. Yet there is hope because of the gospel. There's hope because of the gospel. Just as man is appointed to die, so Christ also died. And whereas the person without Christ will bear God's punishment for his own sin, the person who is in Christ, Christ bore the punishment for the sins of many. For those who trust in Him. Christ took on that punishment so we don't have to. That's why John wrote in 1 John 4, 17 and 18. By this, love is perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Christ has already made the eternal sacrifice for sin. There's no reason for us to fear judgment and punishment if we are in Christ. When Christ returns, it's not going to be to deal with sin. He already did that when He came. He came, He dealt with sin. He paid the price for sin when He died on the cross. When He comes back, it's not going to be to do that again. Why? Because it doesn't need to be done again. When He comes back, it will be to save those who have trusted in His finished work and who are eagerly awaiting for His return. Our salvation, it's, it's past, present, and future. It's past in the sense that Christ has already accomplished what needs to be done for us to be saved. It's present in that if you are in Christ, you are saved now, like right now. And it's future in that Christ will return and we will be saved. He will remove us from this sinful world and we will be with Him for all of eternity. So we know that Jesus came to die to save sinners. But we cannot fully appreciate what God's done for us in Christ without digging a little bit deeper, trying to understand what all that means. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he became the mediator of a new covenant, a covenant that's eternal. It's through his shed blood that we have eternal redemption and an eternal inheritance. And it's all because of the eternal sacrifice that he made once and for all. I love this. As I was studying this, I came across this, uh, what John MacArthur said at the end of these verses kind of considering them. Let me just, we'll close with this as I read it. It says, At the end of that eventful Passover week when Jesus was finishing His ministry, the Romans had prepared three crosses for three criminals. 
On two of the crosses, thieves were to hang. The third cross was for an insurrectionist named Barabbas, who had been found guilty of treason against the empire. But Barabbas never made it to the cross. He was guilty and condemned, but he was not executed because someone took his place. On the middle cross that day hung not a violent, profane rebel, but the sinless Son of God. Barabbas went free not because he was innocent, but because Jesus took his place. Jesus was crucified not because he was guilty, but so that he could take Barabbas' place and the place of every other sinner. Jesus died to take our place for sin. Do you trust in Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, how it teaches us, how it edifies us and points us to You. And God, I pray that as we consider the redemption that You have bought for us with Your precious blood, God, may we just study that and and wrestle with that and grow in our understanding of that so that we have a greater appreciation for who You are and what You've done for us, the salvation that we have in Christ. God, may we not be content to settle with a simple Jesus loves me and and not ever seek to know you more. But God, would you work in our hearts to grow us in a greater love for you and a greater knowledge of what you've done for us so that we may worship you and give you all the glory you deserve. Lord, bless these students. Remind them of the love that you have for them. And God, if there are students here who don't know you, God, call them. Call them by name so they will turn to you and know your love and your forgiveness. And God, help us to share that with others. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.